an ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 58. I know I've said this before, but I am so delighted that this podcast is back. Even though it takes a great deal of time and consumes large chunks of my life that I should probably spend doing things like sleeping, it does afford me the opportunity to meet and speak with such remarkable people uh, all over the world, and I'm very, very grateful for their time uh, and investment of their energy to, to speak with me, including uh, the show you're about to hear today. From the beginning, this podcast and everything that Life After God is and does exists to help people live deeply into the space after God. For some of you, after God might mean atheism and philosophical naturalism. For others, it might mean leaving a toxic version of faith and religion and moving on to something more life-giving, a faith that helps you pursue goodness in a better way. The other thing we've been doing at Life After God is building community around people who are going through this experience of faith transition or deconversion. The community is quite self-directing and there isn't any real leadership, but it's a genuine space of love and support that exists mostly online, but also in real life in neighborhoods around the country where people have found each other. Recently, my friend Brian, who's helped so much with Life After God, both the podcast as well as our online presence, has launched his new therapy practice called Room to Thrive, which also includes coaching. I encourage you to visit the Room to Thrive website at roomtothrive.com and see what Brian is offering. He is, in many ways, at the leading edge of learning how to best assist people who are going through faith transition. Brian just launched a new coaching package as a part of the work that he's doing, and you can learn all about it on his website. Again, The website is roomtothrive.com, and I hope that you will check that out. Toward the latter part of the episode, Brian, along with another remarkable therapist and a member of the Life After God community, Gretchen Meter, will share some thoughts about a subject we've all wrestled with, forgiveness. If you're new to the Life After God community and want to learn more, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. You can follow us on social media. We're on all the social media platforms, and you can find links to all of that at the website at lifeaftergod.org. If you appreciate this podcast and want to help us keep the show on the air and reach more people with these life-changing stories, please visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. Today, I have the incredible privilege of sharing with you a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with Anai Shashenko. Anais grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, as I did, but her experience was drastically different than mine in some striking ways. She's speaking to me from her home in the Pacific Northwest. I should say that the conversation you're about to hear includes stories of sexual assault and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Also, I apologize in advance that the audio quality isn't what you're used to from this show, but I hope you'll bear with us because this is a story you will not want to miss. Anais, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So right from the beginning, I wanted to you know, let everyone know, basically, like we've never met, but we have a lot in common. Uh, and that's because we were both raised in the same religious tradition. Yes, and that's how I found out about you, is because people that I knew were complaining about you. <laughs> oh, were they? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not friends with very many Adventists anymore, um, but I have a few that I still casually talk to. And wow, did they have some things to say? And then I looked you up and I thought that that was just the most horrible thing that I'd ever heard. <laughs> so I wrote an article for Patheos about it. And that's how I found out about you. Which part was the most horrible part? What people were saying or what I was saying? 
No, what they were saying. Oh, okay. Sorry, I guess I wasn't clear. Yeah, <laughs> no, what they were okay. saying. It was. Um, I, I guess I should. I I, I should have known. Uh, but every once in a while, you can forget how cruel and close-minded. You know, if you're just talking about puppies or the weather, and then that happens, <laughs> and it, it, it reminds you, wow, these people are not my people. <laughs> and, and so you were raised Seventh-day Adventist like me, and we both had a, a period of time in which we were not just Seventh-day Adventists, but really sort of extreme Seventh-day Adventists, very fundamentalist. But your story and your version of fundamentalist Adventism was even more extreme than mine, I think. I mean, I went to, um, and this is a little inside baseball for those of you that... Uh, you know, aren't familiar with Seventh-day Adventists, but I went to a little tiny Bible college called Weimar College, and um, and we had um, pretty strict rules, like, for example, girls weren't allowed to wear pants, they had to wear skirts or dresses, um, we weren't allowed to date uh, anyone until we were at least juniors, we, you know, it was very, we couldn't eat any any meat or dairy on campus, it had to, we had to go off campus and try to sneak in some you know, Taco Bell, evil Taco Bell or something like that. Evil Taco Bell. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and we had refugees from another fundamentalist Adventist campus back east who thought that Weimar was just liberal and open-minded and a breath of fresh air. So I know that it fundamentalism is a relative thing. Can you describe a little bit of what your growing up experience was like in the church? Gosh, um, mine was that the world is about to end. And so there's no safety. Adults can't keep you safe. Nothing is safe. Everything is just going to end. And not only is it going to end, but you will be tortured when it does end. And so I, I had to memorize pieces of the Bible, which a lot of Adventists do in Bible Bowl and things like that and Pathfinders. But with me, it was this added layer of fear that if you don't memorize the Bible, they're going to take the Bible away from you. And that if you don't memorize it, you won't have any key to get to God and then you will perish. And it's not going to happen in the future. It's going to happen in your lifetime. And so you better be mentally tough. And then the other angle of that that made it particularly hard is that the level of pacifism so if somebody does do something that it is torturous or cruel, you can't fight back. You have to turn the other cheek to such a degree that you're a walking doormat. And it's that much more extreme if you're a woman. So, wow. um, <laughs> yeah, that, I think that for me, that was one of the biggest things is that they build this world and then they tell you how to interpret it. Um, so do you, is the, those are your earliest memories of the church. Do you, do you have any like warm memories from those times? Because because <laughs> most of the time, I'll have to be honest, most of the time when I interview people about their childhood experiences in religion, most of them say, oh, it was pretty great until I realized it was all, you know, bullshit. So but what you're describing sounds like from very early on, you had this deep fear about the world. Yeah, from very, very early on. And that's part of how I became a writer was that I started telling myself stories to dissociate from it because it was so fearful. Um, and I did have some good memories and those were usually involved with Pathfinders, even though there are also some really scary memories like um, at a, a campery where thousands of people gather to praise God together. Um, there was just, thousands of people gathered together praying and talking about the end of the world and crying. And there's this idea in Adventism that only a very few amount of people are going to go to heaven. And a lot of people find solace in this because they believe that they're good enough to make it in out of all of humanity. And I never had that feeling about myself. I never thought, wow, I am definitely making it into heaven. I'm that good of a person. So I'm just looking around at all of these people, bawling their eyes out. And I just think, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to burn for an eternity. And they're not even going to give a shit. 
because they talk about that as well. You know, we're going to cry for a little bit and then Jesus is going to wipe their tears and then they're going to go on with their life in heaven and that's it. They're not even going to remember you. No. And, and that's part of what's so great for them. But I just never had that security about myself where I felt like I, I was good enough that I'm going to go to heaven for sure. I don't know how anybody feels that way, actually, but whatever. Did any of your peers confide that same kind of feeling to you where they didn't feel good enough and like they were never going to make it? Not until I left. Oh, um, wow. So everybody no. kept up this facade and you really felt, I mean, it sounds like you were completely alone, uh, surrounded by all these people, but completely alone. I guess so. Um, I, I definitely always felt like I was different. I think part of that was that there's a hierarchy in the Adventist church. At least there was for me because I was born in a very poor family, um, lots of children, and my dad was not Adventist. Oh. So automatically that made the other Adventist parents not want their kids to play with me. There's the first level, we're poor. Right. So we're kind of like white trash. Mm. And literally, they, they'll say that. They'll just say that to you. And then the other kids that aren't Adventists don't want to play with you, and you're not allowed to play with them, really. And then for me, that's when I was a little kid, and I wanted to play with some other kid that wasn't Adventist. I started hearing the term peanut and being told that I was in a cult. <laughs> wow. And so then I remember going home and I'm like, am I in a cult? <laughs> Of course, um, that was denied fiercely, but of course. I have my doubts. Um, so I, I guess I, I always, I, I always felt like I was different because I didn't, I didn't like a lot of things and I couldn't be satisfied. And, um, there were like, if there was a child that was a boy, for example, I remember in Sabbath school when I was a little, a little kid, and I'll admit it, I wasn't the easiest kid because I, I'd like to think that I was smart when I was little, especially. And so I'd know the answer and I'd want to say it. And then this boy said it and he wasn't right. But they said he was right and I needed to stop being vain because I was a girl. And that really sat really poorly with me. Mm. So I could, I could never, I could never cope with that aspect as well. I just, I could never accept that just because I was born a girl, I was automatically below men and I had to listen to them no matter how inane and stupid they were. So there was just na a lot of people tell me, and I think from my own experience, I just assumed that what my folks were telling me was true and that was my picture of the world. But from what you're saying, you had this kind of, and I suppose they would say a rebellious streak in you, like you... <laughs> You saw the world differently, like innately somehow. I it just maybe. didn't. It didn't. I guess so. It didn't. It didn't fit. It and didn't I resonate didn't with you. It didn't resonate with me at all. But I didn't have an understanding of what the world would be like because, I, of course, I was not exposed very, to that. Yeah, I wasn't exposed to it, and I was always either in the wilderness or in a very, very fundamentalist Adventist community. So where were so, you exactly? Paint the picture for us. Were you, you say you were poor and it was rural? Uh, yes, I was in northern uh, Canada. I was in Manitoba and I was in Lacombe where uh, there is an Adventist community. I was in Berrien Springs where there is an Adventist community. Um, so always where either where there was an Adventist community or just in the middle of absolute nowhere. So you Wait, you no, were uh, that way your parents kind of could keep you in that bubble. Yeah, yeah, and I think that for at least I don't know how it was when you grew up, but where I was, the idea was that they wanted you to not be part of the world, and that was stressed so much in every way. Like, um, don't watch movies, don't go to bowling alleys or anything like that right of course so, you know um of course everything you said about the dietary regulations um dressing how you dress how you wear your hair 
Um, just every single aspect of your life was tightly, tightly controlled and regulated. Who uh, The media that you get to see, because uh, the church Adventists, for those who don't know, they put out their own material that you can read because you're not supposed to read anything that is worldly. They really want to keep you just in their world completely. And some people can live their entire lives without ever having to deal with someone who isn't Adventist because they have their own police and their own doctors and their own everything. That does really seem indicative of a cult. Yeah, it really, really does. And so for me, I had... I was homeschooled for part of the time to keep me away from the world that much more. (laughs) So then it's even more of you're closed off because the only place I could be was either at my parents' house or at church. And that's that. You've told me in the past a little bit about your homeschool experience. Can you kind of open a little window into that for us? Um, I was homeschooled on and off growing up. So I was homeschooled when I was fairly young. And then I went to a church school in Lacombe for one year, I believe. Um, Then I went to public school for a little bit. And that was because at the time the law was, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but I remember hearing my parents talk about the law where they were was that she couldn't homeschool for whatever reason. Then when I got to be, I was in eighth grade and they changed the law. And so then she pulled everybody out of school, my mother, and homeschooled us. And she used, she started off with some other thing that I'm not sure what it was, but then she quickly switched to accelerated Christian education which is very fundamentalist. It's just outright racist. It is misogynistic. It tells lies. It had a it had a particularly humorous lie in it that said that the Loch Ness monster is real and really that evolution is false. Yes, yes, it does. It might be fun to put a little aside in here that you and I had a a fun back and forth with some other people on Facebook not too long ago talking about how Betsy DeVos, our current Secretary of Education in the United States, is uh, quite a proponent of this accelerated Christian education and is a very strong proponent of the kind of homeschool environment that you were a part of, which is, as you're describing it, just appalling. Yeah, it's appalling. And the thing about it is that nobody has to teach anything because what happens is that they they send away for the, the books. And it's not books. It's little packets that they call paces. And in each pace, like let's say it's for English or whatever, there will be a sentence. And it's always a stupid sentence. There are <laughs> examples of this online. But let's say... Um, there's the wife character and she says, Oh, I'd really like to have a new dress. And then the husband says, we can't afford that right now. And she says, Oh, I'm sorry. I will go ahead and add some trim to it. And then he says, thank you. You are so such an easy wife to love because you obey so well, you know, just bullshit like that. Oh just my terrible gosh. Stuff. Indoctrination, truly indoctrination. Every single thing, no matter what, subject it is it is like that and there are comic strips with these characters and like godly characters they say um that show their their different roles in the family and the girl has the traditional role to play the mother the father the son and they also have uh, people of color in there but they're always separate and they go to a different school Now, the fun thing for me is that that's a very, very fundamentalist, horrible, horrible, teaches you nothing program. It's completely by rote. You don't learn anything. It's and you grade it yourself, by the way. Oh, so you always win. There's so many levels of of absolute nonsense to it. In this very traditional, if you might say, fundamentalist, patriarchal, kind of environment your dad all this time is not a member of the church how is he coping with all of this um i don't really know that's that's his i don't i don't know 
Yeah, you guys never talked about that. I, I, I only know I only know how I cope with it. I don't I don't really know about my other family members. You didn't talk to him about it or complain to him about no. things. No, that was not something to be done. So at some point along the way, you reach a, a stage in your life where you realize that there's another option for your life or that you could make your own choices? How did, how, did, how did you eventually start to put some distance between this crazy cultic experience and where you are now? Um, well, when I was 16, there was a man in the church who took a liking to me, an adult, and he began pursuing me. And he was extremely abusive and he raped me and sodomized me and just was just horrible, horrible, horrible. And, um, I eventually, you reach a point when there's somebody who's abusing you to that degree and you, I had nowhere to go. I didn't even have my own room in my, in the house that I lived in. So there was absolutely nowhere to go. Wow. you reach a point where whenever I would reach out to somebody, I heard either it's because of the way you look, you're bringing it on yourself. So I had really long hair that usually came up a lot. <laughs> I thought that um, was a sign of God's blessing or that women were supposed to wear their hair long as. Yeah. Well, they can say whatever they want when they're trying to justify something else. Of you course. Know? Of course. Um, or that I was lying, or I'm crazy, or there's just a, a laundry list. And so I started telling more people. <laughs> wow. Instead of, instead of being quiet. I was kind of the, a really strange individual now looking at it. Because that, w- that would usually shut somebody up pretty good. But um, there was a lady in the church who was a therapist. I knew she was a therapist, and I knew that there was a law that if you told somebody you were getting abused, they had to do something about it. Right. Had to. I didn't. I was at my rep's end, right? So I went to her and I told her, and so she told my mother. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So that just made it so that I wasn't allowed to leave the house at all for a while. Um, Oh my so God. I, I learned that you just can't trust these people. And then I told the guy, I was like, look, I'm going to tell everyone if you don't stop what you're doing. So I didn't understand. I didn't know how to get out of it. Right. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people look at kids in that situation and they are pretty harsh about it. And they say, well, why don't you just break up with them? Why don't you do this? This guy is somebody who held a knife to my throat and said he was going to kill me. And he did enough other things that I thought, why wouldn't he? Right. And nobody else was going to step in. So why wouldn't you not believe the evidence that you're being shown? Right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so then I told him that. And he said, well, look, I'm going to prove something to you. I'm going to prove that no matter who you tell, they're going to tell you that it's your fault or they're going to not believe you. And he took me to see a pastor in the church. Mm. Um, And he confessed. He confessed to all kinds of stuff to this pastor. And yeah. And the pastor told me that it was my job to forgive this man, an adult. No shit. An adult. Yes. My job to forgive. And there was another man. It was, it was two men. Like there was a, a blind guy there, so and his job was to tell me that he'd been through. He's blind, so God gave him blindness, and somehow he's a good, happy person that has accepted his yoke from God. And this so was that's your what yoke I need to do. Yes, this is my yoke. And holy um, shit! Yeah, and the pastor told me that's my job to forgive and look at everything that I'm putting this poor guy through. And the rapist was just crying and crying and I actually felt a little sorry for him at the moment you know because he was just putting on such a show and I did know that he'd been through some things but everybody has you know as an adult I can look at it and think what a manipulative piece of you know yep but as a kid you don't see that 
So <laughs> anyway, and you're that, six. You're sixteen. Just to re- yeah, remind everyone, you're sixteen at this point. Right, I was sixteen, and so that taught me that he that wasn't. He was he was right. Yeah, he was he was absolutely right, and then he convinced me. <laughs> he was he he really um. <laughs> he looked up to uh, really sadistic people. That was his thing. And he told me that if I got baptized with him, that he would stop. With him? Like at the same time in the, in the uh-huh. tank? Yeah. If I got baptized with him, he would stop because then we would be able to start again. I would be pure again. Oh, right. Yeah. Cause I'm totally unpure at this point. Right. But he's fine. But oh yeah, no, it's me because I forced him to sin. So I, I was sixteen. <laughs> I keep telling myself this because I'm like, oh my god, what an idiot. But I agreed, and I went to all of these courses, and I really put my heart into it. And I said, you know, one more chance, one more chance. Huh. And uh, yeah, so I got baptized with him. And this is another thing that I think, looking back, what. Were they thinking, why do you let a 16-year-old girl get baptized with an adult man in the church? Oh, my God. As, like, and as a, a couple, right? So that happens. And, and this is the moment that, that all of the religion just died for me, is that right after we got baptized, He's like, okay, I'm going to take her out. We're going to celebrate this wonderful moment with Bonnie God, blah, blah, blah. So he takes me to a park and he raped me in the pavilion. Oh my God. <laughs> my hair was still wet. And that was the moment I decided I didn't believe anymore. That was it. Done. It's over. Wow. Um, and I wasn't, and I had oh. absolutely no more care for anybody in. I wasn't going to try with any of the church members anymore. So what did you do? Did you run away? What, how did you get yeah. out of it? Yeah, I ran away. Yeah. Yeah, I ran away. Oh, my. Um, where did you I, Where did you go? I was pretty lucky because I had a... I met somebody that um, helped me. And he got a place with some roommates. And then I moved in with him. Uh-huh. And that was that. I just moved in with him. And then it stopped. Yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> you cut know, off. And I, think that, I think that that is something that people don't value enough. They always say, you know, you have to work from within to change things that you don't like in the church. Or um, you right. have to stick with try it. To, yeah, stick with it. Try to work with people. Try to tell. Try to share. Try, you know, just try and for some people the answer is to leave oh yeah i mean especially and i've i've spoken to other people i mean every story is quite a bit different but especially when you're experiencing like hardcore cold-blooded abuse you have to leave you have to get out yeah and and sometimes it's not safe to tell authority figures. And I think that I, that's another thing that gets missed. It right. is just tell. It's okay to just tell. No, it isn't always okay to just tell. Sometimes telling can make people try to kill you, honestly. Yeah, I, and people I die. That sounds horrible, but it's true. Sometimes yeah. you have to be very, very cautious about who you tell and how you tell. And sometimes the best thing to do is to run away and don't tell <laughs> Which I, I know that that sounds terrible, but sometimes there are circumstances where that's what you should do. Right. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I mean, all this time you're telling this story, I'm thinking about our current sort of cultural moment in the United States with so many high profile cases of women coming forward and, and high profile men being you know, caught in, in doing horrible things to women. Part of that is that for every one of those high profile cases, there's hundreds and hundreds of individuals like you that were suffering in obscurity and silence and nobody knew. How has this Me Too moment affected you? 
Um, I'm I'm hoping that there is a, a kind of rainy down because the people, if if you have, it's always horrible to get abused, always. Right. But if you're somebody who has a privileged position in life where you can afford therapy or you can afford rent and right. food and basic necessities, it makes it a lot easier to have a Me Too moment. Right. And so I hope that they use that to, you know, raise awareness where it's easier for people to come forward and safer to do so instead of having it be so difficult because it's not just how horrible it is when it's happening. Mm -hmm. It's everything that happens afterwards. And all of those things that happen afterwards are sometimes more traumatic than what happened during the actual assault. You know, the way that society treats you, Mm. the way that you might lose your friends and your family. And in my case, my entire community. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's all of the many ways that, people are told, oh, well, it, you're crazy or, you know, you deserved it or what were you wearing? I I've mm. had all of those questions be asked or, you know, and many more. So, or people assume even outside of the church, this whole purity thing, it needs to die. Yes. Um, I don't believe that any man or woman or person in general, their worth or this purity is not true. It's just a ridiculous concept. Right. Yeah. To to so that you can use people as property is what that's for. Right. Yeah. The unsullied kind of thing. Right. It's just it's just ridiculous. So I'm hoping that it if people who are in such privileged places are coming forward, then they have power to help change laws, to give money to lobbies, to to enact change at higher levels. At lower levels, you know, like people who don't have money, the thing that they can do is be kind. Hmm. And kindness costs nothing. Right. And I don't think anybody ever looks back at their life and goes, wow, I really feel bad about the fact that I was kind right there. <laughs> right, or... You know? Or just someone to believe you. I mean, as you were telling that story a minute ago, and I'm sure that for, you know, you could fill endless hours telling stories. I would never ask you to do that. But as I'm listening to you tell that story, you could have just used someone to just believe you. Yeah, I could have used somebody to not just believe me, but then to help. To do something, to say something. You know, it took took some college-aged men to step up and help me. Mm. And that I will forever be grateful. They were just young men and they were my roommates and they were phenomenal. I mean, they, they did everything for me. They saved my life, you know? Wow. And they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to be kind. They didn't have to go and let me move in with them or do anything, but they did. So my whole life is different because of that. Wow. That's amazing. And that was just a couple students, you know? Right. Do you have any contact with your family or any of those people uh, since that time? Yes, um, I do. Uh, Of course, it's a a complicated thing, but I think that life is messy. Mm. Um, So, and I think that one of the things about homeschool and about anybody who's abused is that um, a lot of times it is happening in in the family or really adjacent to the family you know people that they know and love and so it makes it really tough to say anything because it feels so disloyal Mm -hmm. and it's just such a deep-seated thing you know to say that my mother helped me pack educationally. And, you know, that's a tough thing to have to, to say. Right. You know? 
And it's true, but there's other things that are true too. So you have to kind of find balance there. And are your, uh, is your mom still involved in the church and as committed to it as she was before? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> wow. Absolutely. Yeah. And what about these pastors and this, this, um, person who, who abused you? Did they ever face any kinds of consequences or are they just no. carrying on in their ministry as always? I'm sure they're carrying on in their ministry as always. Yeah. Um, do you yeah, ever do you I, ever feel like reporting them or or the statute of limitations is over and oh yeah that um, thing did yeah that thing and beyond that I did have a, when I was seventeen after I moved out um, I had a guy stalk me and assault me and I did go to the police and I did get a restraining order against him hmm. so um, <laughs> wow you've really really been through I, it. I did have I did have that experience, but I I think that especially in I I was really young and right. I didn't know I didn't know how to do anything and all the police especially okay for that for that circumstance when I was seventeen here's a good example that happened in the same town right so and it was really obvious I had witnesses I was at my work and the guy came in didn't say a word came behind the counter and started strangling me. What? People saw him do it. Yes. Yep. And then uh, my the, one of the guys that I worked with ran out and chased the guy out. That was the first time I ever met the stalker. So there was witnesses. I had red handprints around my neck. And the cops came, and they were part of the church, and they said that I wasn't injured enough to do anything. The cops were part of the church? Yeah. And they... Yeah, they're all... Yeah. And they didn't not, do anything about yeah. it. No, they said I wasn't injured enough to do anything. And I had red handprints around my neck. And witnesses. I've, and witnesses. And I've since learned that um, if a man strangle or anybody, if, if strangling is one of the things that is an indication of somebody who's going to, you know, up the, the game to murder statistically. Right. So uh, he kept doing this type of behavior, stalking me and assaulting me until I went to the state police. Oh, wow. So I had, and I, I had to do that at 17. I had to figure out that I had to go to a higher level of police to get anything done and then go to a courthouse and find a woman's advocate and all that. As a minor. So, as a minor. God, God. So, <laughs> So just for that, I'm pretty pretty proud of my past self for that. But absolutely, it, I think that it it would have been really difficult. And then I always had that. Um, I was told if if you tell, if you tell, then they're going to take you know the younger siblings away, or there's going to be this big problem. And you know there was just a huge amount of guilt, and right. I didn't have my stuff together at all. I was a mess. Of course, I mean so. Yeah. yeah, what you've been through and then being still so young and not having any, like, stability and all the adults education. that were... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, education, right. And and the yeah. adults that were supposed to be looking after you were complicit in your abuse. And, I mean, there's no possible way, barring some kind of miracle, so to speak, that you could have had your stuff together. Yeah, so I, I don't think... I. I couldn't have done anything. And I don't think that <sighs> having, having looked at a lot of cases now as a grown up and seeing how they play out, I don't know that it would have gone very well for me anyway. Right. So, <laughs> well, we just had an election here in the United States in which the major candidate was accused of, you know, kind of what yeah. you're, kind of what you're describing. Absolutely. And it's yeah. like, and he stood for the, one of the highest offices in the country and everybody, you know, like nearly half of the people in the state that voted, voted for him. It was just... Roy Moore almost won. He almost won. I mean, we we're celebrating he the fact that he lost, won. but he got, what, 47% of the vote. That's absurd. Yeah. It's absurd. He almost won. How close to that story did you feel, the Roy Moore? Pretty, pretty 
close. And I, then yeah. it's a child marriage too. You know, like that's something that I am so angry by. What right does a parent have to say that their 14-year-old kid can get married? And the U.S., and now that I'm outside of the church, I've had a lot of, you know, liberal people around me or just friends. I'm not busting out the liberals because I am one. But I have a lot of people who have said, oh, look at these other backwards countries. No, look at your own country. Yeah. They let grown-ups marry children in every state. It's ridiculous. And that's part of that Roy Moore story. Well, he had the mother's permission to date his daughter. Right. And legally, he's right. I mean, they're, you know, that's, you know. <laughs> it's just, it boils my blood. I know. It's, I mean, I can't it, imagine. It makes me really angry. And it, it makes, makes me, me angry. And I didn't go through anything like what you did. I can't yeah, I imagine. Hope it makes you angry. Yeah. I hope it does. I, I hope that it makes any sane, empathetic, reasonable person angry. So speaking about anger for a second, like how have you managed your feelings and your psychological health going forward? How have you managed to be the person you are today? Um, I think that one of the, the first things that I did that was very beneficial was becoming a storyteller and building my own worlds that I could just dissociate into. And mm. I've had a lot of flack for being so pro-dissociation, but I think there are definitely situations in life that you don't need to live in that, not yeah. really. Um, so I think that that helped a lot. And then after that, you know, after I left and stuff, I had a lot of problems. And because of all of the, um, I had a period where I drank a lot, for example. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But, and I had anorexia and I went through uh, inpatient treatment for that, which was kind of interesting because I didn't have it the way most people have it. Hmm. Um, I, I had it in this, all of the Ellen White writings about um, eating, you know, hmm. she, she'd go on about you can't have heavy cream and you can't have this and you can't have that and all that stuff really got to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was really hard getting that even though I'd left the church you find all of these pieces of yourself that still deep down believe that right yeah it's somewhere and, in and there that was there yeah and so like pepper for example pepper a big no-no right and so for me part of my eating disorder treatment was I put pepper on things and I forced myself to eat that and <laughs> say, no, this is not me. This is not what I believe. I know this is illogical and this is Ellen White. This isn't me. I don't want it. And um, so I did that and I wrote books. That was very helpful. Mm. And I write music. Um, I think that one of the biggest things for me is that I met a woman who teaches opera and I trained with her for about 10 years. Oh, wow. And she changed me. She changed me a lot. She taught me how to speak clearly because I mumbled a lot. I had really low self-esteem. And um, she held me when I cried. And she was she's fierce herself. She would go to Nepal and she went into brothels and in India and in Nepal and she saved girls. She literally saved girls from sex slavery. And that is a woman that I found to be my voice teacher. It could not have been. I mean, I don't believe in fate, but <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was a very fortunate thing that I found her. Um, so I think that she was super instrumental because I used to have anxiety attacks, for example, and she taught me how to manage them. Hmm. And she was the first person that I was able to talk about these things with such, you know, just talk about it. Yeah. And and be okay and and understand that I forgive myself. Right. I don't I don't forgive them and I don't think that I ever have to. But I forgive me. I forgive me for not knowing what to do. Yeah, we can be so hard on ourselves even when we know that rationally looking back that you really did the best you could under the circumstances 
we it's so still so easy to be hard on yourself i'm sure and to just get to the place where you can say no forget that i i did the best i could must be a huge relief yeah i think that there was a, a few things that happened i i read um carl sagan's book hmm. and that was like a layer of of guilt and stuff just hmm. came off which is a, it was very interesting and richard dawkins too same thing um and i would read things that like henry miller i i read i would go to libraries and i just read whatever i could and some things would make me very uncomfortable henry miller is one of them hmm. i started reading him when i was 18 and you know especially since he would describe sexuality and things like that but I think that because I, I really pushed myself and I wrote everything down and I track why, because I wanted to find out why I was the way that I was and create somebody I could get along with hmm. because I did not like myself. I hated myself. And part of hate was that everybody around me seemed to hate me, you know, so I had to find someone in there that I liked. And did you? Yeah, I did. I, I found out that I can be a artist and I don't have to accept that um, rape is sex or that there's any such thing as purity or that I am not pure. <laughs> right. Or that there's anything wrong with thinking that somebody's attractive. Um, a million things. Um yeah, and I think that it's very important to be able to appreciate things and see wonder and awe around you. So I try to do that. Say a little bit about the writing that you do. I've written two collections of poetry, and then I have two novels in verse. And the the fiction is young adult. And I think that one of my primary motivators was that I would read a lot of young adult because I was trying to understand, you know, what people are like. The people like to say opposites attract, but I think that sameness attracts. People people like to feel familiar and comfortable. And so when you come from a you I can't share any of these childhood memories with people. Like, oh yeah. I totally remember doing it. No, it's not gonna happen. So <laughs> nobody's gonna relate I, to that. No. So I pick up young adult fiction. I try to make sense of it. And there was one book that I read where the the mother character was the one who she turned to at the very end of the book and then fixed everything. And I threw it across the room. <laughs> so I decided I wanted to write young adult books kind of to help the people that that wouldn't be very useful for, you know, kind of, kind of my own bit on it. So I have one that was about um, a girl from the time that she enters an eating disorder treatment facility to the time that she's released. And I think that that is a story that I wanted to hear told because I hear a lot of stories about um, not liking what you see in the mirror, you right. know, thinking that you're fat. But why do you think you're fat? What are the reasons for the for that feeling? Um, I think that that's a lot more interesting to me. And also just the physical things that happen. I think that that's not talked about a lot. Like um, when you are gaining weight and you're unable to go to the bathroom, I think that's very um, hmm. embarrassing to a lot of girls. Right. And they feel really ashamed. Oh, there's a lot of really embarrassing things that happen when you're going through that. So I wanted to write about that so that they wouldn't feel like they're the only person in the world that's ever felt so gross. <laughs> wow, that's a um, gift. Uh, yeah, I, I hope so. And then I had the other one that I just did was about a girl, the two best friends, and it's their summer break. And one of them, their life is improving, and the other one is going pretty poorly and so it's kind of their relationship and also um, some family abuse and how how it gets resolved 
I love the way that your expression of, of yourself through art has been a healing thing for you and, and I think probably for others as well. Well, thank you. I hope so. I think that for me, I feel like if you bleed on the page, then you're letting all that poison out and mm. then you can scab over, <laughs> get a scar, you know, and then once it's out in the world, I also have this wonderful freedom of feeling like it's not mine anymore. So I don't have to be concerned. Oh, that's beautiful. If, you know, if, if they like it or if they don't like it, that's that's what is on them because they're putting their own meaning there. Hmm. So it's it's not it's not for me anymore. It's not up to me. And you, it seems just from seeing you on social media that you, there is a, a community of writers that you've become a part of other, other people who are writing in a similar genre and you guys interact with each other in person or online. Um, some of them do a bit of both. I, I, and they're not all in the same genre too. I have friends. That was my first community, which was pretty scary, right? Yeah. Because I have not been in a community since growing up. <laughs> right. I've, I've been a bit of a hermit, to be honest. Um, but I met Joshua Robertson, and he is a fantasy writer. And Joshua will just pull you into his community. He is just that kind of guy, hmm. and I love that about him. So then through Joshua, because he got me to, to join the community, um, which I was very on the fence about, but I did it. Then I've met, you know, science fiction, romance. I've uh, poetry, children's authors. I've I know so many different sorts of writers. Steampunk. All of those people have taught me stuff and definitely changed my writing and helped me. I had one writer, Asif Mehr. He helped me format my books. So you never know. If you do find the right community, it can be golden, um, which is great. And then I had another writer, uh, Jacobo Della Corcha. He, his book was a steampunk fantasy book, and he's a historian and an educator. And you know how I might be drawn to educators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I read his book, and that because of him, I wrote my first fanfic based on his book. So I do have a lot of writers that I talk to now, and I am happy to be in the writing community and blessed to know so many great people. Um, J.D. Estrada, my goodness, he writes so many different kinds of books. So if you want nonfiction, fiction, science fiction, children's book, poetry, my God, there's something about knowing all of these types of people that makes you a better person and more driven, you know, cause now I'm a full-time author. So I, it, it puts a fire under you because you're like, Oh God, you're releasing two books and they're great. Oh, got to <laughs> do something about that. Buckle down. That's right. Well, nobody deserves to have found a good community more than you. And I'm so happy that you're happy, you know, and that you're able to express this and, and I'm sure that for many years you weren't able to talk about it this calmly and clearly, you know, the experiences that you've been through. But just you sharing this, these stories with me on, on this show, countless other people are going to be touched and moved. And um, it's a gift, even though the suffering, you know, was not your fault and you didn't deserve it. It happened for whatever, you know, horrible evolutionary reason. But you've turned it into something um, that can help other people. I decided that no matter what I thought or had been through, there's other people that have been through it. So there's nothing that I can say that's going to be shocking. Not really. There might be moments where people are going to be a little, just because nobody really talks about it or says that. But I, I refuse. After being so repressed, <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely refuse it now. I won't do it. I just won't. So it's a freeing thing. You know? Yeah, I'm sure it must be. And good for you. Enjoy your freedom. Thank you. You too. You're free too. I know. It's great, isn't it? It is. There's life after God. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your evening and chatting with me. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 
One of the issues that came up in my conversation with Anais, as I'm sure you noticed, and something that's been on my mind off and on since my year without God, is the subject of forgiveness. After hearing Anais's story and chatting with her more in the intervening weeks, I felt compelled to explore this subject more. The Christian scripture holds up forgiveness as one of the most important virtues. Forgiveness is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. God sent Jesus into the world to forgive sinners, but not simply to forgive them. He had to ritually take on the sin of the world and to die to atone for those sins. Then humanity could receive God's forgiveness. Likewise, we are told in the Bible to forgive those who offend us, and that if we do not forgive, God will not forgive us. Even though most of us were told that God's love and grace are unconditional, there seem to be quite a few conditions attached. Outside the Christian framework, what is forgiveness? How does it work? Is forgiveness an important element of a healthy and happy life? Can it be destructive to a person's life? When is an appropriate time to forgive, and how does one undertake such a thing, if it's even important at all? I asked Brian Peck and Gretchen Meter to speak with me about their experience and to offer some insights about what forgiveness means from a secular point of view. So, Gretchen, how did you understand forgiveness growing up in a religious household? The Christian version of forgiveness I was taught growing up uh, was really not helpful on a number of fronts. It was compulsory under the threat of not being forgiven myself and essentially meant forgive or be tortured for all eternity. Uh, It also emphasized both release from responsibility and repair of the relationship. And so what that meant was that if I was harmed, it was my job to pull it together, somehow be okay with being harmed, and make nice with the other person as though nothing had happened. And all of this was supposed to happen instantaneously somehow. It really never made sense to me. It sort of felt like saying a thing that you were supposed to say, but it didn't change things on the inside for me. And so when I compared the view of forgiveness I was raised with compared to uh, the view I have now, uh, the current view I have feels like a burden being lifted and a a release and a letting go, while the view I was taught uh, at church growing up literally feels oppressive. I, I just, if I think about it too long, I, I just, I feel kind of yucky and sick to my stomach. It's not, um, it, it, they actually feel quite opposite to me in a lot of ways. Brian, what about you? Growing up in, in an evangelical church, I learned humans were born with a sinful nature and that without supernatural intervention, we would instinctively engage in harmful behaviors. In its most simplistic form, I learned that all the bad stuff was due to our base human nature as a result of sin, and all things good and noble were were a result of some kind of supernatural intervention. In this context, forgiveness was viewed as a miracle of sorts, something the natural man was incapable of on his own. Humans could sort of forgive each other, But it wasn't the real deal because, like it says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In my experience, forgiveness inside of a church context range from something that was at times beautiful to an empty word with little care for humanity, an obligation tied to one's salvation, or a way to dismiss harm and excuse abuse. And how do you both understand the subject of forgiveness now? Is this something that we have to do, or is it something that's good to do? I like to think about it within a psychological framework, and there's actually a whole literature on the topic. And so within that framework, forgiveness is described as the conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person uh, who's harmed you or a group. Uh, And that's regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness, whether there's been any justice or even an apology from the one who caused harm. It's more of a personal process one engages in for oneself. At the same time, it it doesn't mean forgetting or condoning or uh, excusing offenses in any way. It's just a personal psychological process. 
I see forgiveness as being somewhat ordinary and view it through an evolutionary lens, much like I would any other behavior. It seems clear that forgiveness has been adaptive for humans and other non-human animals. However, I think we often fail to acknowledge the downside of forgiveness, the ways it can be used to dismiss victims, perpetuate abuse, and remove responsibility from those doing the harm, as well as the surrounding systems that create conditions where forgiveness is neither safe nor helpful. The more Brian, Gretchen, and I spoke, the more we realized that we really wanted to get into this more and invite your participation. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a live webinar about forgiveness and the way that it functions in a secular environment, especially for those of us that grew up Christian. If you'd like to be alerted about when this webinar is going to happen so that you can be a part of it, please go to our website at lifeaftergod.org and sign up for our mailing list, and we'll send out an email with all the details and how to register. Also, follow us on social media, where we'll be announcing this and other opportunities to get involved. Special thanks again to Brian and Gretchen for sharing those insights, and of course, enormous gratitude to Anais for sharing her story, a story that I'm sure moved you, certainly has moved me and inspired me. I'll put all the information about Anais's writing and her books in the show notes so that you can get them for yourself. Thanks, as always, for spending a portion of your day with me, for tuning into this podcast, for being supportive, and for being a part of this community that is supporting individuals who are going through faith transition. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast.